0: The one thing I've been nervous about all day is that I not say good morning. So good afternoon. <laughs> okay, the rest is down, it's downhill from here. My name is Scott Holley. I'm a member at Green Tree, and I have the privilege of speaking here on the holiest week of the year about the claims of Jesus. And, I, and I'd like to simply say that I, that I think as a Christian the most important question that was ever asked to anybody in the history of the universe is the question that Jesus asked to his disciples. They'd been traveling with him, living with him. They'd heard him preach. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen his miracles. They'd been with him in very informal situations, very frightening situations, and inspiring situations. And one night he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And really, the truth is, they didn't know what to say. Uh, my picture of this is these guys kinda, I, I see them standing around a fire. Jesus asked a question. I, 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 I was a teacher for a long time. I know how kids react when you ask a question, they don't wanna answer. They all look down. And I, and I, think, that's what the, I think that's what the disciples are doing. They're all looking at, at, at their feet. They don't know what to say. And for 2000 years, to one degree or another, we've all been struggling with that question. Who do you say that I am? So tonight we want to look at that question. Who did Jesus say he was? What did he say about himself? Because for 2,000 years, different people have been making different statements about Jesus. I mean, Christians, the church says that he's God in human form, he's God incarnate. Mormons say, no, 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 that's not right. He is a once human man who became divine. Muslims say, no, he's one of the prophets. He's a great prophet like Abraham or Moses or Muhammad, but he's certainly not divine. Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, no, he's the Archangel Michael. People like Thomas Jefferson say, no, you've got it wrong. He's a great moral teacher. That's who Jesus is. Some people say, no, you all have it wrong. He was not even an historical figure. He's a legend, someone like Beowulf or somebody like King Arthur. an example maybe to a specific culture, but that's really who he was. A myth, a legend, not an historical figure. Modern atheists say things like, well, you know, yes, Jesus was a great religious teacher. Mohammed, Buddha, Jesus, Moses, they're all kind of in the same boat. They're men of great wisdom, men who have something to offer, but Jesus isn't anything beyond that. He certainly can't point to himself as God and certainly can't even point to God. And then there's people like Dan Brown, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code, and he says, Jesus never thought he was God, never claimed to be God. Nobody during his lifetime thought he was God. But it was hundreds of years years later at the Council of Nicaea where a bunch of church leaders for their own political reasons and financial reasons got together and said, Jesus was God. And so the whole idea of the divinity of Christ comes from that. And the truth is that even those of us who are Christians struggle to figure out exactly who Jesus was. We may believe, yes, he was God, but we all carry a picture in our head of who he was. And our pictures sometimes compete with each other. Because it's so easy for us to form Jesus in our own image and want him to conform to our idea of who he should be. Let me let me try to illustrate that by showing you several images of Jesus and see what we can see from them. Now this Jesus, the one on the screen right now, is sort of the Jesus I think a lot of us would like him to have been. He's very handsome, very friendly, warm, engaging. Somebody's inviting him to have a relationship with him. Very clearly. That's the Jesus who's very appealing to us. The next picture of Jesus is similar to it, but there's a mystical, ethereal quality to him this time, right? He's a little more removed from us. The other guy seemed like somebody who was, again, very warm and inviting, and he is too, but that otherworldly glow about him somehow sets him apart from us. I mean, none of the rest of us carry an aura around with us the way that guy does. The next Jesus. This is a Jesus who's a little bit intimidating, isn't he? I mean, this is a Jesus who looks a little bit ticked off. We don't really know what he's ticked off about, but he's not a guy I really want to walk up to and engage in a friendly conversation because he does seem like he's, a, he's a very strong and very purposeful and somebody who seems somewhat unapproachable. Now contrast that to the next Jesus, who's very different. This is a Jesus who looks like we'd like to, go to, we'd like to have him go to a party with us. Jesus, the guy who enjoys a good joke, a guy who you could have fun with. A guy who we would enjoy just being in his presence because he's a guy who understands how to laugh, how to enjoy life. The next Jesus is Jesus as the cover of a romance novel, Jesus. He's got the long flowing hair. He's good looking. He's buff beyond belief. He only allows guys to be his disciples who are on a good workout program. <laughs> this Jesus is is literally a comic book Jesus, but a comic book Jesus in, in the other sense of the word too, somebody who is just a little bit too good to be true. The next Jesus takes that up another level. This is Jesus on steroids, a Jesus who out Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a guy who, I don't even know what to say about the artists who would draw a picture of Jesus like this, except to say they must be a supplement salesman. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with that. The next picture of Jesus couldn't be more different. This Jesus, the Jesus of a wanted poster is bedraggled, a fugitive, someone who seems a little bit woebegone, very different from the previous one. And then the next Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. This is a Jesus we might meet on the streets of Jerusalem today. Two more. The next Jesus. This is probably not the Jesus most people in a suburban church picture. But Jesus was a Middle Easterner. He was not Norwegian. And so there's a chance that this is what Jesus, in fact, looked like. We don't know. The last Jesus is one, is I think in many ways the most interesting. Scientists took a bunch of skulls from the Middle East, first century Middle East, and they tried to reconstruct what a a Middle Eastern man in the Holy Land might've looked like in the first century. And this was their picture of what they say Jesus might've looked like. Now again, I I don't think any of those pictures necessarily look look like what Jesus actually did appear to be or who, who he was. But the point is that we all have a picture of Jesus. We all have an image of who he is. He's really this strong man. He's intimidating. He's very warm and inviting. He's a Jewish rabbi. I mean, I don't know what the picture is that you carry, but everybody to some degree, whether it's a religious group or whether it's an individual, we carry a picture of Jesus in our head. And what we want to do tonight is actually go to the text, go to the the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and see what he said about himself and see what other people said about him at the time. Because, again, Dan Brown says Jesus never claimed to be God, and nobody thought he was God in the first century. Is that true? Or is that the Dan Brown version of the Bible? Is the Da Vinci Code right? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So what I'd like to do is open in prayer, and then what we're going to do is look at four vignettes, four quick stories from the life of Jesus, and see what conclusions we can draw about him from them. Okay, So let's open in prayer. We'll jump right in. Father, we are grateful that you didn't hide yourself from the people of the first century you didn't, and you don't hide yourself from people today. You stated very clearly and unequivocally who you are, why you came. And it is the stubbornness of our own hearts that erects walls that refuse to see. And I just pray, Lord, you help each of us to see you not through the filter of culture, not through the, the filter of tra- tradition, but rather by looking at what you said and to see who you were. Father, there are so many barriers to overcome for us to be able to do that. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see this afternoon. May you be with us today. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Halford Lukac was a Yale Divinity professor. He said this. The indignity that Jesus suffered being mockingly clothed by the Romans has been inflicted upon him again and again. More than once has he been clad in costumes that do not fit his personality with the result that the man who walks before us has been so completely disguised as to be unrecognizable. We want to try to take off the disguise. Who did Jesus say he was? That's what we're going to look at. Again, four vignettes from the life of Christ. The first one comes from Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Now this is early in the ministry of Jesus. It's a story that many people in this room will know. Jesus is teaching in an enclosed room, is very packed. There's four men who bring their friend who's paralyzed to Jesus to be healed. They they have difficulty getting him into Jesus' presence. They finally do. They lay him at Jesus' feet, and they're waiting now for Jesus to say something and do something. And where Jesus goes with this is not what they expect at all. This is what he says. And when, Jesus, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I think their response is the right response, frankly. So here's Mark Reither sitting here in the second row. I say, Mark, your sins are forgiven. And you kind of go, well, whoop de doo Right? Because who am I to pronounce forgiveness of your sins? I have no authority to do that. I have no ability to do that. I can say those words to you, but those words mean absolutely nothing. And so in this room full of people, I'm sure when Jesus said that, there was this murmur that went through the crowd. It's like, what? What? Even the people who were sympathetic to him, I'm sur- I, I would guess even his disciples looking at each other going, did he just say that? That didn't make any sense to these first century Jewish men and women who were looking at this going what the heck is this guy even saying I mean think about the words of Psalm 51 when when David who's in his confession of his sin in committing adultery with Bathsheba says against you alone God have I sinned now that's a man who committed adultery you'd think he committed an offense against some other some people as well right but what David, what David is saying is, ultimately all sins are committed against God. All sins are, are, are defiance of God's ordained order. That's what, that's what David is saying. And so to an audience who was familiar with that text, for, for Jesus to say something like that, he's saying, who are you to forgive this man's sin? Think about the extraordinary nature of that claim. I, this unknown uneducated, at least in terms of the scribes and the Pharisees, uneducated man from the sticks, I'm standing before you saying to this person, your sins are forgiven. That is an audacious claim. And they say quite rightly, who can forgive sins but God alone? And I'm sure that Jesus was inside kind of going, bingo, bingo. That's exactly right. Thank you. That's exactly right. And then of course, he goes on and heals the man. And so there's two things that happen in this story that, that I think we, we, we need to look at and consider in terms of a claim that Jesus is divine. He doesn't say in, these, in, this, in this vignette, I am God. He doesn't say that. But what he does is say, I have an authority beyond anything that you understand. And I have the ability to perform miracles beyond anything that you can understand. And the people walked out of that offended, or mystified or amazed because Jesus was doing a work far beyond anything anybody had ever seen before and making claims beyond anything that anybody other than him had any right to make. Okay, vignette number two, another healing. We're only going to look at a little section of this. A man has been, has been lined by a pool at Bessey for for 38 years, Looking to be healed. Jesus comes along and says, do you want, do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? And the man says, yes, I do. And Jesus heals him. And this causes an outrage. And we, go, we just pick up the story and read just a little bit of it. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, again, the reaction is what's interesting here. Jesus has healed a man, which is, of course, a good thing. And the Jewish authorities would not have been upset with that. But he did it on the Sabbath. And that's what disturbed them. Because, of course, Jewish law said that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And that law comes, of course, in the Ten Commandments. Moses brings the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. And from Mount Sinai, one of the commandments says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And over the hundreds of years since the life of Moses, all kinds of customs, traditions, and laws have been built up around the idea of the Sabbath. So here comes Jesus, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. And they are outraged by this. How dare you do such a thing? But what's the implication beyond that, that action? Jesus is saying, implicitly, I have the right to redefine the Ten Commandments. Now think about that. Think about if Tom Rick stands up in the pulpit of church next Sunday and says, okay, remember, remember the Ten Commandments, let me tell you what they really mean. You've had it all wrong. For hundreds and hundreds of years, you've got it wrong. This is what they really say. We'd look at him like, what are you talking about? And I see a lot of elders out here, I hope you do something about that. <laughs> but Jesus says, I, I am here to tell you that your understanding of the Sabbath is incomplete. And he does the same thing again and again throughout the gospels. He heals on the Sabbath many times. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this really explicit. He says in chapter five of Matthew, he says on multiple occasions, something like this. We'll use one example, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He says, you've heard that, excuse me, let me start that over. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now the wording of the, those statements is really interesting. You've heard that it was said to those of old. Because if you, were a, if you were a rabbi in Jesus' day, what you would do when you were teaching was appeal to an authority that was highly respected. You say, according to Deuteronomy, or you'd, you'd, you'd appeal to a rabbi who was well-respected in, in, among leaders of the Jewish faith. That's how you would teach. But that's not what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now again, the audacity of a man standing before th- these Jewish leaders and saying, I'm going to now reinterpret the Ten Commandments. And he does it not only with, with murder, he does it also with adultery. He does it with a line, and then he expands that discussion to talk about divorce and talks about the way you should treat your enemies. So Jesus is taking centuries of Jewish law, Jewish tradition, Jewish thought, Jewish teaching, and redefining it. Now again, who has the authority to do that? What makes him think he has the right to do that? And they rightly are offended by it. They say he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The man who redefines the Ten Commandments, the guy who says, I can forgive sins, the guy who demonstrates his power and authority by healing, is a man unlike any other. And these people see that, and they don't know what to do with it, and they're offended by it. The next vignette, John chapter 10. Jesus has been talking about the fact that he is is a great shepherd, and we'll come back to that later. But he talks about that. And then he says, look at the first words in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. Whoa. I give them eternal life. Again, Tom, try that from the pulpit on Sunday. I give you eternal life. Now, that's, that's David Koresh, Jim Jones territory, isn't it? I mean, that's scary stuff. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. What do we do with that statement? I mean, really, what do you do with that? I give them eternal life. Who has the right to give somebody eternal life? No one can snatch him out of my hand. No one can snatch him out of my father's hand. Now, wait a minute. Wouldn't you think the father could snatch him out of Jesus' hand if Jesus isn't God? And then he says, I and the father are one. Now, a skeptic might say, well, wait a minute. That's not a claim of divinity at all. And here's here's the rationale behind that. Let's suppose in the days when, when, let's say when our daughter Jill was a teenager, that she violated curfew. Now, in those days, if that happened, I'd go to bed, and my wife was a warrior. She'd stay up and sit and wait for her. That was the dynamic in our marriage. So let's say that I'm asleep, and all of a sudden I hear a ruckus downstairs, Jill's come home an hour late, and Joan and Jill are in a fight. And I get out of bed, and I go downstairs, and Jill is, they're, they're really angry with each other, and Jill says to me, Dad, Mom just grounded me for six months. That is so unfair. And I might say, well, your mother and I are one. I mean, we might say that, right? And what I'm saying, of course, is we're of one accord. We're of like-minded. We're like-minded on this. We agree on this. And skeptics say that's what Jesus means. Okay, okay. Well, Well, let's run that out a little bit. Let's see how his audience reacts to those words. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, the punishment for blasphemy was to stone someone. Okay? I and the Father, one, was not, hey, I agree with God on this one. That's, that's not what they hear. All right? Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And so Jesus kind of baiting them a little bit. You see it? He's saying, okay, I've done these miracles. Is that what you're angry with? And they say, no, no, no. It's not for a good work we're going, we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, again to the skeptic who says that this is not a claim of divinity i just don't i wonder how you i wonder how you deal with that because that's what his enemies heard they want to kill him when jesus says that they're deeply offended by that the father and i are one you being a man make yourself god okay next next vignette now we go to the end of jesus life he's on trial this is basically just a few days ago in our calendar, right? So the high priest and the Jewish rulers have tried to pin all these false accusations on Jesus. And finally, in frustration, the high priest basically cuts to the chase. He says, all right, bottom line. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, you've said it. You've said it. Thank you. But I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now again, we're a 21st century audience. We're not exactly up on things like clouds of heaven and son of man and that kind of stuff. Those words are are somewhat mysterious to us. But they were not to the high priest. Let's see again how he reacted and how this audience reacted to those words. Then the high priest tore his robes, which was a sign that I'm in the presence of a blasphemer. And said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? The answer, he deserves death. What is it that Jesus said that caused them to be so offended? I mean, this is now, tipped this whole trial over the edge. They're now officially said, we're done. You're going to die. Because of what you just said, you were going to die. So what is it about those words, again, that's so offensive? Well, to understand it, we've got to go back hundreds of years to the book of Daniel, in the chapter, chapter 7 of Daniel, in which Daniel has a vision. And he, he reports on that vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now let's stop right there and talk about that a little bit. The Son of Man idea. Jesus says to the high priest, from now on you'll see the Son of Man. He uses that title for himself. And as a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, we we have a lot of titles. We have a lot of titles for Jesus. The Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, Lion of Judah, uh, Lamb of God, things like that. But the number one self descriptor that Jesus used in the Gospel was this, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. So we hear that, and we don't really, I mean, it doesn't resonate with us, because we're not exactly experts on biblical prophecy from Daniel. That When you get to that part of the book of Daniel, we kind of check out, because it's, it's bizarre and prophetic, and it's difficult to understand. But here we are, and these guys, his audience, they were well familiar with the, 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 the biblical prophecy. These members of the Jewish ruling elders, they knew what Jesus was saying. He's equated himself with the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? Well, Let's, again, let's, I'm going to reread that and then pick up the rest of it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, of the clouds of heaven. And remember, Jesus said in his words, you will, uh, let me go, I will come on the clouds of heaven. He said that to the, to the high priest. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then he says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a prophecy of God coming to restore his kingdom, to restore his people, to bring his rule upon the earth. And so when Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, they hear this and they go, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You claim to be that Son of Man? that we've been waiting for, God returning at the, at, at, to restore truth and justice and righteousness to this world, you claim to be that man. How dare you? How dare you? And again, from their perspective, we can see why they think that. Jesus, Jesus is, is, is linking himself to a prophecy they've been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years to see fulfilled, and he's saying, I am going to sit at the right hand of power. I am going to be the one whose dominion is everlasting, all people will serve him. And by the way, that word serve is a, in the original languages is used only when you talk about serving God himself. And I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom that will not be destroyed. He is linking himself to that prophecy and the, the, the high priest is outraged. Now there's something else Jesus is doing. Let's just make a really quick point on this. He's also telling them what's going to happen in the future, Right? He is predicting an event that is yet to come. And he does that throughout the Gospels really quickly. And three times in the, in the Gospel of Mark, he does this. I'll give you one example. Mark 8, 31, he says, He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here's Jesus saying to his disciples months before these events are going to actually occur, Here's what's going to happen. He tells them again and again. They still don't get it. This is what's going to happen. Because who thinks that anybody has the ability to foretell the future? I mean, again, if Tom Rick stands up next, next Sunday and says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen six months from now, we'd look at him like, what? People don't do things like this. And he also says, I'm going to rise again. So, so let's review. He's claimed that he has the power to forgive sins. He can perform miracles. He, takes, he, he connects himself with prophecy about God and the return of God to restore justice and righteousness to the world. He redefines the Ten Commandments. He says the Father and I are one. He says he has the ability to overcome the power of death. And again, I would ask you, who, who does things like that? Who can say a thing like that? And so I would say to a person like Dan Brown, again, the man who wrote the Da Vinci Code, who said that Jesus never claimed to be God and nobody thought he was in his lifetime, how do you read the Gospels and how do you read those passages and just say, well, nobody thought Jesus was God in in his day? Nobody heard him making claims like that? Let alone the fact that when, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection and appeared before Thomas, and Thomas, of course, had not been there when Jesus first appeared to the other disciples and spent a week sort of saying, I don't believe this. And when he finally appears before Thomas, Thomas falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And what does Jesus do? He says, you have said rightly. He doesn't say, get off, get, get, get off your knees. No, you can't say that to me. And again, I hate to keep picking on Tom. But if Tom, if you come up to Tom after after Easter service tomorrow and fall on your knees and say, My Lord and my God, he would he would look at you like, oh no, my sermon did not exactly connect this week. <laughs> There's something very unusual about this man. Okay. Let's leave those vignettes aside And let's, let's make this as direct as we can we want, to look at, we want to look at several statements That Jesus makes about himself In the Gospel of John and then we'll be done Okay John eight fifty eight and 59 He says Truly truly I say it To you before Abraham was I am And again let's look at his reaction So they picked up stones to throw at him But Jesus hid himself and went out of this temple There's a lot of picking up stones In these stories aren't there? There's a lot of people who want to throw rocks at this guy. And again, that's that's the penalty for blasphemy. They don't like what they're hearing. They understand what Jesus is saying. So let's break it down a little bit. He says, "Before Abraham was, I am." First of all, he's saying, "I lived, I was alive before Abraham." Now, if I stand before you and say, "I was alive before William Shakespeare," you'd all look at me like, "Okay, thank you." And you would just kind of you would try to break off the conversation as quickly as possible and go talk to somebody else. This is not the kind of thing that people say. I was alive from the long before the founder of the Jewish race. Okay. All right. But then he says, "I am." Now, what are why are those words significant? Why do they pick up the stones? Well, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses was very, very frightened about having to go to see Pharaoh, he says, Okay, God, if I go to see Pharaoh, who do I, or excuse me, if I go to the, go to the Israelite people, the Hebrews, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, Tell them I am sent you. That's the name that God used for, to identify himself I am. Now, this name is considered so sacred that Jews would not uh, utter the, the, that term aloud let alone claim it for themselves. And Jesus here says, not only says the words aloud, but he says, I am. That's who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And again, we read those words. They may not mean anything to us, but they did to the audience. They pick up stones and want to throw at him. They understand what he's saying, and they're outraged. And then, throughout the, the Gospel of John, he makes a series of I am statements. Let's just break them down and look at them really quickly, one at a time. He says, I'm the bread of life. I am that which gives you sustenance. I'm that which keeps you alive. Think of the arrogance behind those words. If Jesus is not who he says he is, who says a thing like that? And then he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm that which guides you. I'm that which overcomes darkness. And again, Who says things like that? He then says, I am the door. I'm the one you must pass through to get where you must go, to be in the presence of your Father. He says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who guides you and protects you and leads you to places of safety and refuge. He says, I am the true vine. And he adds immediately after that, and you are the branches. A a branch cannot exist apart from the vine. The vine is that which gives it life. I really struggle with people who say Jesus was a great moral teacher, and that's all he was. If he's a great moral teacher, if that's who he was, what do you do with statements like this? I mean, really, what do you do with them? How do you say a guy who says things like that is a great moral teacher? I am the light of the world? I I, I don't get it. I don't I don't get that connection. I mean, this man is either something far beyond human comprehension. Or he's arguably the worst person who ever lived. And if you don't believe that's true, look at, look at the last two I am statements. John eleven twenty five 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If Jesus is an ordinary man, talk about raising expectations. Talk about creating false hope. Talk about being an evil person to say things like that. I, I, I don't have much stomach for the his, Jesus is just a great moral teacher argument. That's a very selective reading of scripture, I think. Because a man who would say things like that is either the most extraordinary man who ever lived, who is indeed divine, or he's a monster, or he's crazy. The last one, John fourteen, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. You've seen him. What do we do with that statement? Now, I'm a Christian, so I have a strong point of view here, (laughs) unapologetically so. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus said emphatically that he is in fact divine. I guess the 21st century skeptic would say, well, why didn't you say, I am God, any questions? But that's not what he did. He was a first century Jewish rabbi using the language of that culture, and those times, and that tradition. And he says throughout scripture, for those who have eyes to see, let them see. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What do we hear when we hear those words? Do we hear a guy who's an ordinary man? Do we hear a man man who's making extraordinary claims about himself, unlike that of any other person who ever lived, who also demonstrates a life of the utmost integrity, And the the utmost sacrificial love, as both clearly demonstrated demonstrated through the events that that occurred on this weekend we're celebrating right now. Who do you say that I am is a question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question we all need to wrestle with. And it's easy for us to bring preconditions and prejudices in our culture into the discussion but at the end of the day we've got to answer the question not in terms of of anything other than who Jesus said he was and what he did bottom line who do we say that he was who do we say that he is and who do we say he is doing in our lives right now and then the question becomes what are we how are we going to respond to that reality How do we respond to a God who died on the cross on our behalf with a shrug of indifference? How do we do that? So I leave you with a question that we all have to answer. Who do you say that I am? Let me close in prayer. Father, we are very grateful that in your humility, humility, and in your grace and in your goodness. In your claims, the ability to forgive sin, in the miracles you performed, in your statements about our failure to understand what you're trying to say to us. In your mercy, your grace, your goodness, you demonstrate to us again and again, the extraordinary nature of your love. And I just pray that every person in this room would think very deeply about what that means for us personally. Because no matter how much we say we love you, we all fall short of loving you as we should. We all take you for granted. We all dismiss you too easily. We fail to see what you were asking us to see. And I pray, Lord, that in this Easter weekend, as we celebrate the resurrection tomorrow, that we would be reminded again of the goodness and the grandeur and the greatness of who you are. So thank you, Jesus for dying for us, for loving us, for letting us be your sons and daughters. It is an honor we do not deserve. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.